Well, if you would, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 11. Our text tonight will be Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It should be a familiar story, at very least in name, even if you're new to the Bible, the story of the Tower of Babel. The sermon's title is The Tower of Babel and the Triumph of Christ. If the Bible is new to you, the book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so you should make it easy to find. And if you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the banisters around the auditorium. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, the scripture says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all, they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose. Uh, propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Well, think with me for a moment about names. Everyone wants to be called by their name, but there's also a phenomena that's common to humans that we don't just want to be called by our name. We want other things to be called by our name. Everywhere we go, it seems there are things and places named after people. Streets get named after people. One of the strangest things about St. Charles County, Missouri, I mean, this drove me nuts. Uh, Streets named letters. So you have Highway K, Highway N, and when they ran out of letters, they started doubling up. So you have, you know, take a left on Highway DD, and these are all over the place. It smells of a lack of culture. I like St. Louis, but it drove me crazy. It also smells of a lack of ambition. I mean, wouldn't somebody want to put their name on that street? I had a friend in in Louisville who was on Machupi. That was his street, Machupi. He's been there maybe a decade. First five years, had no idea where the street name came from. No idea. And, and it's not like they were all sounded like other languages, the streets in the neighborhood. No, his was just Machupi and the others sounded normal. Well, I guess the first two people on the street combined their last names to give their street the name Machupi. And I don't remember what those names, those names are. So streets get named after people. And there are cities like Washington or St. Louis or Madison, Wisconsin, Lincoln, Nebraska, Jackson, Florida. Invent something or make a scientific discovery and your name's probably going to stick around because you'll probably get the privilege of naming whatever it is and you'll assign your name to it. What else would you do? And who can forget buildings? These are especially prestigious. The Sears Tower, downtown Chicago. I think it got... Uh, I think it's actually the Willis Tower now. It might have been switched back, but new new ownership. Uh, it's got a new name, the Willis Tower. And I remember there was protest about that. But a new guy needed his name on there because he was responsible for that building. 
We want our name to be known, to be esteemed, and we, are in, we instinctively esteem names that are great. So what's going on here? What is this all about? We want our name to hang around. It represents us. It means we aren't obscure. It means we're great. It means we're famous. If people can know your name, that's better than no one knowing your name. Obscurity is no fun. And if people can remember your name after you're dead, even better. And how many of us would love to remember, be remembered after we're dead? Or in our own profession, to be remembered in that profession for something great and not to be forgotten. We want people to know our name and we want everyone to know our name even after we die. Well, that's what this text today is about. It's about names. It's about glory. And this passage in Genesis 11 is not about obscure people from history with obscure ambitions. This passage is about the very kinds of everyday, every minute sins and temptations we are engaged in in this world. And my prayer is that we would trust in the triumph of Christ over sin and pride tonight. The display of God's power and his glory is in the triumph of Christ on the cross, defeating sin and releasing us from a slavery to self-worship and self-exaltation. Let's look at the passage. Let's look at the story together. Who are these people? They're the children of Noah. And we know this uh, story well. Many of us are familiar with it. It's been some time and there's been plenty of repopulation, but these migrating people in this story are the descendants of Noah and his family saved from God's judgment through the flood that wiped out humanity years before and is no doubt in their memory. What do we know about these children of Noah? Well, Noah's children had unity together, verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. When God made the world, I take it he designed us to have a single language to communicate and endeavor together for all of the great purposes he would unleash us as his image bearers. And they had one language and the same words. His children had unity. Noah's children had challenges, verse 2, and the people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The story of Genesis, you may be aware, moves uh, from Eden uh, west. You're moving, you're moving east of Eden. Or is that east? Sorry. Uh, Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 4.16, after Cain killed his brother, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. It's moving east. And they were settling in a new place. Not easy. They were creative, so there was unity, they had challenges, they had creativity. Verse 3, and they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They figured out how to do this. God did not show it to them. He gave them the equipment to figure it out, minds and his image. We don't create things out of nothing like God, but God made us to make things, be little creators like he is a creator. When we often think about ancient people, at least for me, I, I think of something like um, cavemen, you know, not able to do much, sticks, stones, writings on walls, and that's about it. But if you've been to the ruins of an ancient civilization, I'm sure you remember thinking, how did they do that? How did they get that stone there? How did they get that stone in that shape? How did they make that stone into the face of a person. I couldn't do any of this stuff. The more you learn about how they lived and the clothes they wore and the weapons they fashioned, 
Uh, and even the things that they wrote, the more it is just fascinating and even humbling. We can't do those kinds of things, 24 hours without electricity, and most of us would utterly panic. Maybe some of you are ready for being without electricity for 24 hours. I am not. But just look at what we can do when we cooperate. The possibilities for us are just amazing. Consider the pencil. It's probably not in your pocket. I haven't used a pencil in a long time. In fact, it was about a week ago I picked one up, and I just looked at it for a minute. And I tried to write with it, and my muscles in my hands aren't working anymore uh, on the computer. But just think about the pencil. It's a product of cooperation across many industries to make this thing and put it in your hand. Lead, wood, metal, paint, whatever the eraser is made out of. And the stuff comes from different parts of the world. It is transported. There's economics involved in this. There's treaties probably involved in this. It's crazy what is possible with cooperation. It is marvelous, and it rebounds to the glory of God. We should give him all the credit for what we can do. Humans have creativity. These folks did. They were making buildings and planning a building out of burnt bricks, and this thing was probably going to be amazing. Consider the phone in your pocket. I mean, I, I was out for pizza, and my daughter, I took a picture of my kids eating pizza to text it to my aunt, and my daughter says, what are you doing? I said, taking a picture of you and sending it to Aunt Fran. How, does, how did you do that? And I stared at her. And then I actually attempted an explanation that involved invisible signals and towers, and she smacked me, and, you know, like, I'm pulling stuff over them all the time and they've learned you know, to ask mommy if that's true and uh and so she thought I was making this up and I wasn't making it up it's just it's just amazing what we can do human beings are creative we make things we build things we construct amazing buildings we create technology that can create technology that can be used to create technology we're industrious inventors and we're creative We're also ambitious, and these children of Noah were ambitious. Verse 4, and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Humans are full of ambition. We think of things that haven't been made before. Birds keep making the same old nests. right? Beavers make the same old dams. I don't even know where they learn how to do it. They just know how to do this stuff, but they don't really do anything new. You don't have... uh, Yeah, you don't have much going on with birds and beavers outside of the things that have always gone on with birds and with beavers. But we are dreamers, and we chase after lofty goals that we think up in our head. It's possible to underestimate the technology of ancient people and also the ambitions. Imagine if there weren't just ancient peoples, and think of all the things that we find around the world, but an ancient people who together had an ambition to build a building. This thing would show up anything that we have seen left on land by any former civilization. And all of them coordinated around this purpose together. These things are true of us, and they were true of these ancient people. But we know that the story is not here to applaud the creative achievements or ambitions of humankind. Even how possible or how admirable and wonderful the things are that we have the ability to do, this story is not here to applaud us or them. There was a problem. God gave them unity, creativity. He gave them imaginations and ambitions. But all of these gifts were focused for a purpose that was set against God. 
Genesis 11.4, let us make a name for ourselves. Why are they building a city and a tower? To make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's going on here? Self-exaltation is going on here. Self-exaltation, let us make a name for ourselves. They weren't just building a great building for some kind of legitimate use. It was an affront to God. It was a climbing to heaven, as it were. Self-exaltation and self-preservation. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We have to stick together. If we don't, bad things will happen. There might be a memory of the flood here uh, that we can hear echoing in this uh, reason that they give in verse 4. Imagine that you own a print shop. Is Greg Dart here? Greg, you own a print shop. Easy for you. The rest of you, imagine you own a print shop. Imagine you hire an employee for a specific job. You need him to run your printing press. When you spring, uh, swing by to check on his work, he's printing flyers for his own printing services. He's using your shop and your machine and the hours you're paying him to print flyers for his own business instead of jobs for your clients in order to win their business for himself and use your machine behind your back because he doesn't trust you to pay him. He doesn't want you to succeed. This is a bad hire. You should fire that guy. He's wrong to do this, and he's also stupid to do this. After all, the boss just fired the guy before you and the, uh, him and the guy before him and the guy before him doing the same thing. Remember, in the memory of these folks, building the Tower of Babel is the flood. Is God not serious about his name, about his righteousness, about his worship? And that's like us. With all the lives, energy, and creativity, the language God has given to each of us, we set these to work for the promotion of ourselves and of our own greatness. And the problem is that all of our abilities and greatness is derivative, and we do not give God credit for it or use these things for his glory. So that's what's going on here. The description of the heart of the matter at Babel gets to the heart of the human problem, which is the story of the Bible, which leads us to Christ. In Genesis 1 and 2, the eternally existent and glorious creator God makes everything out of nothing and humans specially for his glory, tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to spread themselves throughout the earth, having dominion over it, which would include building buildings, but for his glory. God has given the world into their hands so that they would live in the world in such a way as to show forth his greatness. Like a painting takes the glory of the artist wherever it goes, so humans were to take the glory of God into all the world. But this obviously is not what happened. The serpent came to the couple with a lie that they could be like God, and that lie sounded great, and they choked it down, and they ate the fruit, and that's where death happened, started where death came into the world. The story unfolds. There's more sin and more death. Think of Cain and Abel. Cain resented his brother, and so he killed him. That's on the very next page. And the story from Genesis chapter 1, 3, sorry, to Genesis chapter 11 is sin and destruction and stupidity. That's our story. There's a story of the flood. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Holy cow. And so God, sparing Noah 
and his immediate family destroyed every living person. And after the water dried up, Noah gave, God gave Noah some commands. These will sound familiar. Genesis 9.1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's basically what he said to Adam. It's like saying, all right, let's try this again. But Noah and his generations did not obey. Water washed the earth, but the human heart was unchanged, unwashed, uncleansed. And together the human race was a force for great destruction, even as they were constructing a great tower. And here in chapter 11, we have the last scene of what is the first act of the book of Genesis, an ironic story that makes a clear point. And this is the point. Mankind is hopeless. Sin extends to every part of every person on the planet. That is the point. You're reading Genesis, all this tripping and falling and sin and rebellion. Climaxing in chapter 11 is to say, there is nothing you guys can do. You have no hope before this God with all the chances and all of the threat of judgment and reality of judgment. This just, the cycle begins again, that of rebellion and sin and then God's just wrath. And the tower was a physical expression of the inward sin of self-exalting, self-preserving, God-defying spiritual insanity that is at the heart of every human. So what did God do? What did God do? Well, the Lord came down. And this is not good for their self-exalting, self-preserving purposes. He came down first to see what was going on. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. He came down to see. It's interesting language, isn't it? They were building a tower in the heavens, but apparently God couldn't even see it. That's what's going on here. Of course, God can see it. This is kind of poetic work going on in the story. Uh, They're building this tower into the heavens in in ancient Babylon, which uh, would be on the minds of any of the first readers of this text, which started, by the way, right here in this story with the division of nations. Babel and Babylon being the same word in Hebrew, actually. So Babylon is in the background as we read this. They would build ziggurats, I think you say them, uh, stairs, stair step, temple looking things into heaven so that they, their God could come down and meet them. Their gods needed help to do that. And they could actually build a staircase to get to their God. Isn't that nice? This God, no, 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 no. They try to build a tower. And God has to come down in order to see the tower. So it's kind of insulting. It's, it's meant to be a play on the language to kind of make fun of the builders. God couldn't even see it. But of course he could. But there's a point being made. They thought they could reach him, but they can't. Our God is in the heavens. And this is not what they expected. It is certainly not what they expected. He came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. Children of man or children of Adam, same word. The children of Adam had built. They're acting just like Adam. These are sons and daughters of Adam, the man who fell into sin and led us there. These aren't just sons and daughters of Noah, although they are. They are also sons and daughters of Adam. And they are collectively doing to gather what Adam did alone and with his wife. So God came down to see what the children of man were doing and to square up the situation. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. 
God saw their unity. He calculated and understood and knew their potential. He knew what he had made and what it was capable of. And he saw how bad it could get. And please don't hijack some of this poetic storytelling here to support any kind of diminished suspicion about God's greatness. Saying that God came down to see or that he was thinking about things might mean for some that God wasn't able to see what was going on from heaven. So it diminishes God. But it is actually the opposite. God is so high up that he cannot be reached by man's greatest attempts, even under one language with one purpose. He can't even see our highest towers from his home. And we think that we can reach him. He came down to see what was going on. He also came down to judge and to restrain sin. To judge and to restrain sin. Verse 7 and 8. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. God saw what they were capable of and so he took a key to that potential away. What was that key? Talking and being understood. He confused their language. Think about that. Language is a gift from God. Imagine what life would be like without the ability to talk. We might be like the beavers or the birds, just doing the same thing over and over again. No, language is a gift from God, and in this case, it was abused, and so he took understanding away and divided their languages. Even at their best, think about this, even at their best, the NSA can only track, this is in the news, right, can only track what people are saying, they cannot decide whose language gets changed. All right, those guys, we're going to divide them into two languages. Who could ever, ever compete with a power like that? Well, that's just to highlight the sovereign greatness and the power of God who can just decide in a moment and speak that kind of change into human life. He dispersed them. Now, if you're reading Genesis carefully, by the way, and you may have noticed this, you, when we come to chapter 11, you will be scratching your head. And you might say, ah, a contradiction. Chapter 10 is called, we might call it the table of nations. It outlines where everyone lives, where the languages are and where the people are. It's kind of like a genealogy of nations and languages. And it ends by saying, these are the clans of the son of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. But then chapter 11 starts out saying, the whole world was united in one language and came together around one project. What's going on here? I mean, Hebrew moves from right to left on the page, right? But the story shouldn't move backwards too, or switch gears and move forward and backward. But actually it can. He states the obvious up front that there are different nations and people all over. Imagine reading this. Oh, okay, so this is where everyone's at and this is where they went after the flood. But then he surprises you by telling you the story of how and why that's the case. Here's how it happened. Everyone had one language after Noah, which makes sense. And then they tried to become like God, like Adam did. And so God gave them new languages and spread them out. In one sense, this is judgment. It's a frustration of the plans and purposes of man. But remember I said restraining sin. In another sense, important sense, it's also a grace from God. It's also grace, a form of restraining grace. It's grace because through the confusion of human language, God restrains human sin. 
there are certain possibilities for human sin that will never be realized because people are spread out and speak different languages. It decentralizes human evil so that it cannot concentrate itself so densely at one people and one purpose. Here's how one pastor put it, now thinking in our own context of the world we live in as Christians with a mission with the gospel. Listen to these words from John Piper. God's division of the world into different languages hinders the rise of a global monolithic anti-Christian state that would have the power to simply wipe out all Christians. We often think that the diversity of languages and cultures and peoples and political states is a hindrance to world evangelization, the spread of Christ's glory. That's not the way God sees it. God is more concerned with the dangers of human uniformity than he is about human diversity. We humans are far too evil to be allowed to unite in one language or one government. The gospel of the glory of Christ spreads better and flourishes more because of 6,500 languages, or should that be 65,000 languages, not just in spite of it. Well, at, the end of history, at the end of this story, we're supposed to be without hope. Uh, by the way, I think it's a typo on my part. I'm trying to remember if I copied it or if I um, typed it. I typed it. It's 6,500 languages. Um, so at this point in Genesis 11, we should be without hope, right? There's, there's nothing we can do. Uh, all we do when you leave us alone with the land is thwart God and get in his face and throw stones at him and think we're great and forget him and then he confuses our languages. This is going nowhere good. And there's a lot of pages left on our Bible. What could this possibly look like? Well, thankfully, this is hardly the beginning of the Bible and the rest of the Bible is the story of God's gracious provision of salvation for this kind of people. It's not just a book about our sin, but about God's great grace, which goes much farther than merely to restrain sin. And so praise God that he came down and that he came down in the person of Christ again. God came down to us. We could not reach him. If we thought we could, we can't. But he came down to us. If you will, in your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 6 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. And as we think of the pride of man, who thinks he can reach God with hard work and creativity that he received from the God of heaven, listen to this description of Jesus' work. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And so in the person of Christ, God came down, and Christ 
came down to save sinners. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He saves Babel Tower building sinners like us. Through his obedience, he obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, where Adam did not, where Noah did not, where Noah's children did not, where Abraham did not, where where David did not, where Israel's leaders did not. Jesus obeys perfectly. He's a perfect mediator between us and God because of his obedience. He saves us. He comes down to save us through his obedience and through his suffering. He suffered death on a cross. The judgment at Babel, which was also a grace, was nothing like what had taken place years before when God judged the generation of Noah, which is nothing like what God will issue to sinners who do not turn to Christ and are not found forgiven at death in hell. We should not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the body and the soul. Jesus Christ suffers for us on the cross so to take the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven so that we cannot suffer for our sins. Judgment at Babel was nothing compared to what the previous generation experienced, which was nothing compared to what we deserve. The reason Jesus died on a cross was for sinners like us, who are sinners like the people at Babel. Genesis 11, as we've said, is not just about ancient architects and construction workers. Genesis 11 is about you and it's about me. It's about the human problem. And thankfully, it is not the end of the story. It is a setup for the main character's arrival in the next act, even chapter 11. The story of Abraham begins there. But the main character there is not Abraham. The main character is God, who after he confuses the language in chapter 11, comes to a man living in the southern part of Babylon, Ur, and makes a promise to him to what? To make his name great. He says, go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So the generation of Noah's sons here who are building this tower are trying to make a name for themselves, but God is jealous for his own name and he will make his name great through Abraham, whose name will be great on his account. So my friends, where do you want your name? That's a good question. Where do you, where do you think about your name being? Once your name's on the lips of your boss or coworkers, we should give up, repent on making a name for ourselves at work, doing anything that it takes to have our name at the top of the leaderboard or on that office door, but instead work hard for the glory of God, giving up the accolades if it means honoring him with our time and our life and pursuing hard work and approval because it's right and it's good and honors the Lord. You want your name in the lips of your peers. You want your name in the lips of your peers, give up on making a name for yourself among your friends as the guy who everyone thinks is smart or funny or wealthy 
who can buy those things, who has those things, or wise, who has that insight. This is all very subtle. Listen to yourself talk and ask yourself the question, did I say that so that they would think a certain thing about me? Namely, that I would, I'm great, I'm better than that person, or I'm better than they thought, or I'm better than I am. Why do we say the things we say? Give up on making your, your name great among the other moms. Your name great as being the one with the great kids. Pursue in the lives of your children and in your home a love for the name of God and an attention on his name. Our names are nothing. He saves us in order that we might make much of his name forever. Jesus did not leave the throne in heaven where he was first experiencing the glory and the eternal love with his father in heaven. Not here for some kind of earthly tourism opportunity to see what it's like. There was nothing good for him in his experience of being a human. All of it was suffering. There was good experience, but it was all of his life was a form of suffering that led to the cross. He left glory for us. So Christ came down to save sinners and Christ came down for multilingual exaltation, something that couldn't have happened without Babel, by the way, right? Verse 10 of Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Every tongue. You know, this text is probably referring to the praise and the acknowledgement and the recognition that Jesus would get even from those who didn't praise him in this life and who are being punished under God's wrath. I think that's likely what's going on here. But he will receive the, the wholehearted praise and worship of everyone who is trusting in Christ for all eternity in heaven, and his name will be praised. Interesting, in Zephaniah, the prophet seemed to allude to a day when maybe the confusion of Babel would be reversed. Zephaniah 3, 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Jesus, of course, says he has all authority in heaven and on earth and sends his disciples out to make disciples among the nations, right? Where did that start? In Babel. And at Pentecost, Jesus sends the Spirit. In Babel, there was confusion of language so that they couldn't understand each other and their purposes were thwarted. At Pentecost, they're speaking different languages, but they can understand each other and they're confused. The text says, astonished. There's a reversal of Babel that happens when Jesus comes, is raised from the dead, and sends his spirit, and now unites us in one purpose to take his name to the nations. Isn't that neat? And in the new creation, Jesus Christ will be praised. Listen to Revelation 5, 9. For you were slain, we'll sing, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And listen to these words just a few chapters later in Revelation 7. 
After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude, John says, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A reversal of Babel. God does does not just thwart human plans that are against him. He executes his own. And in eternity, he'll be worshiped by every language and every nation. So the book of Genesis, we usually think of chapters one through three, is a chapter of beginnings. But it's also the beginning of the story of the whole Bible, and it's the story of new beginnings by the grace of God. And that's why there's a Genesis 12 and not just a Genesis 11 or more of the same. We cannot get to God, but thanks be to God in Christ, God has come to us. So if you have been constructing throughout the course of your life Uh, a tower of work, if you think that you can reach God, if even as a Christian you think that your approval by God is on the basis of your obedience, consider the Tower of Babel and how impossible it would be for any of us to reach God or merit any of his approval. He cannot see us, the text says. We are a speck on a speck in the universe that he stands over and made. We are nothing. He is everything. His name is everything. His name is great. And our salvation and our ability to hear from him in his word and be heard by him in prayer is all on account of his grace, which is the point of the Bible's story. The Tower of Babel points us to the triumph of Jesus Christ over sin and over death, which is our only hope. 